Big story, one of the biggest stories south of the line this week was the antitrust suit launched by the federal government of the United States, the Federal Trade Commission specifically. That's the department of the government that is spearheading the uh, Facebook lawsuit. But they are joined by 47 states. The bottom line of the suit, basically the government of all the states, alleging Facebook has abused its dominance in the digital marketplace and it is engaged in anti competitive behavior. Uh, They're looking specifically at the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp over the past few years, pointing to they uh, that was a tactic that they say now was designed to crush the competition. And for its part, of course, Facebook has not had a lot to say about this, but a lot of people are pointing out that, wait a second, the application to buy Instagram and WhatsApp several years ago, both of those were approved by the same branch of the government that's now coming after the the company to try to break it up. So a little confusion around all of this and a massive amount of money and an enormous corporation involved. To uh, help us sort it all out, we are delighted to welcome back Robert Burko. Mr. Burko is the CEO of Elite Digital and joins us from Toronto. Rob, good morning. Welcome back. Great to have you with us again. Good morning and happy holidays, Sterling. Always glad to start off the weekend with you. Well, it's great to have you with us, too. Now, what did you make of all of this? No surprises. It's sort of been uh, bubbling on the back burner for a while. Uh, but it's once it was launched, they came with all guns blazing, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, this was a uh, go big or go home in its finest. I mean, this was and this is a groundbreaking scenario. I mean, this is actually a big moment in time because the outcome of this is going to have some really big factors Um, Because Facebook is not the only behemoth that uh, is sort of in this boat. And essentially, this is talking about taking the biggest social network on the planet and trying to unravel it. And I can't even imagine what it would look like to take the most complicated puzzle uh, 10 years, you know, almost a decade after some of these acquisitions that we're talking about and trying to unravel it. This is uh, this is going to be a long drawn out battle, but this is going to be a landmark case. This is going to have far reaching implications that's not only going to impact every one of your listeners, but literally everybody around the globe. Well, you know, and, it's, and Facebook is is certainly the test case here in North America. But there's also uh, there's there's uh, Australia is involved in all of this right now. They're going after Alphabet, Google, uh, under similar uh, types of uh, lawsuits. And again, the Australians are also pointing to uh, sites and, and organizations, Robert, like uh, Facebook and Google and others, which many, many people use as news sources. And of course, uh, they uh, there's a lot of money going around in terms of news sources and uh, nobody's paying any taxes. These are enormous corporations and you're quite right. The whole world is watching. So um, what's the next step? Once we've had the formal announcement by the Federal Trade Commission and the attorneys general of dozens of states, the suit has been filed. We're still waiting, I guess, officially for Facebook to respond, aren't we? Yeah, so I mean, I think everyone can brace. Them. I think everyone can brace themselves for a very long, drawn-out battle. Facebook is not going to roll over here, and there's a lot of interesting things at play. Like if you're sitting there at Facebook, and again, I am. I am not defending Facebook at all. We all know Facebook has done some very shady stuff. The Cambridge Analytica scandal was not that long ago. Right. Um, in my mind, they sort of broke the social contract. We as consumers, we sort of knew we were we were giving them our private data, but we trusted them to take care of that. And they violated that trust. And mm-hmm. that's a, a big deal. And that sort of left some some scars. But as we look about what's happening here, if the general narrative is Facebook is too big, then where does this lead us? 
if Facebook is too big and Facebook does run um, Instagram, they do run WhatsApp. And these are some of those popular networks. Sure. But if Facebook is too big, uh, is Google too big? Because I check my email and that's Google. I do a search online and that's Google. If I go watch something on uh, YouTube, that's also Google. So is Google too big? And by that token, if Google's too big, I guess we have to say Amazon is too big. People don't even realize how many things Amazon owns. That's true. Um, the big gaming uh, gaming platform, streaming platform, Twitch, is owned by Amazon. Um, IMDb, if you want to go look at the top 100 movies, that's Amazon getting more of your data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we're going to put Amazon into that bucket, I guess we have to put Apple in that bucket. And if we're going to put Apple in that bucket, I guess we have to put Microsoft in that bucket. So this is actually going to be a very interesting case because while Facebook uh, is certainly not the uh, the poster child for proper privacy uh, controls, which is fundamentally what I think the conversation should be about. That's what the social conversation should be about. How are they taking care of our private data? This is going to have big implications because if we start saying how big is too big, and even if it was approved 10 years ago, which it was, and that's going to be what Facebook keeps hearing. Oh yeah, It's going to be, hey guys, 10 years ago, you said this was okay. What do you mean after 10 years of us investing in this platform, now it's not okay? This is going to have far-reaching implications across the entire tech sector because there are a few big giants that run most of the show. Indeed, and the Europeans have been onto this, Rob, as well. And in fact, the Europeans have been chipping away at Facebook and Google more aggressively than perhaps any other region on the planet. Not very successfully, but they've been more aggressive about their displeasure with the size of these uh, corporate giants. And I think the fact is that there aren't many people who participate in any social media these days who don't completely understand that once you involve yourself in any of these platforms, you've basically accepted their invitation for you to join and they will take whatever information you give them and do with it exactly as they please. Yeah. So fundamentally, everybody, I mean, everyone needs to understand they signed up for a deal and they didn't know what that deal was. But the deal was we're going to, you know, Facebook and and all the other platforms. And again, I'm I'm an active Instagram user, WhatsApp user and Facebook user. Sure. So I'm, I'm part of this. And the deal is basically we're all going to use your platforms and we're going to use it for free. No one listening to this right now is paying to use Facebook, is paying to use WhatsApp. I frequently, multiple times a day, I'm sending WhatsApp messages to my friends and family. I'm on Instagram all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm paying nothing for that. And right. nothing is a pretty good price tag. You bet. That's the price tag of free. What everyone has to realize is the price tag isn't actually free. What you're doing is you're saying, I'll use your platform for free. In exchange, I'll give you my data. And then all these platforms can turn around and use your data to basically monetize the platform and make money. And that's essentially the deal. And a lot of people who use these platforms don't necessarily know that's the deal. And that's why even as I read about these landmark cases, my focus continually goes to, should we be talking about privacy controls and what you're doing with that data and how you safeguard that data? My big question, you know, when I saw this giant lawsuit was, would we rather have them focus on the data protection and what are you doing with my information as one big company, or I'm going to split you up into three little companies, but it's still a wild west with my data. There's going to be a lot of interesting conversations that stem from this. And it has a big implication because I know myself and everybody else, while we may love these platforms and we absolutely do, we want to make sure they're treating our data with the sensitivity it needs, because if that's the social contract, 
We'll give you our information. You take care of it. And we're all going to be in a symbiotic relationship that can't suddenly turn into an abusive relationship. Yeah. And those European countries and the FTC and, and all these sort of states are saying, hey, wait a second, something here isn't adding up. And if you're not taking care of our data and you're squashing the competition and you're a giant that can't be touched, we got to have a conversation about it. It's just going to be an awkward conversation because 10 years ago we gave it the big thumbs up. Yeah. And I suppose then it could be some people seeing this as almost missing the mark. Hey, wait a second. It's about my data and my right to my privacy about my data that apparently you don't completely understand having joined Facebook and surrendered most of those rights. Nonetheless, a lot of people are going to go, it really should be about data privacy and rather than this uh, this uh, monopoly, uh, this uh, antitrust, a huge mega corporation busted up into smaller units and then deal with privacy details. I think it's all part of the same package, Rob, don't you? Absolutely. I think it's all one and the same. I just, you know, I always want to steer the conversation towards what affects us, what affects us, the people, mm-hmm. right? Now there's real, there's real merit into monopolies are bad. There's problems. There's no doubt about it. There's ample information on how monopolies affect the economy. No doubt about it. But I think as the average person out there looking at this, I think what they need to know is these giant corporations we're entrusting them with a lot of data. What are they doing with it? Yeah, How good. protected is it? Yeah, These good. corporations know more about us than we know about ourselves. No question about that. And, it's, and that's the spookiest element of it all. One of the big stories from south of the line this week was the group of United States Attorneys General, 48 of them, uh, leading an antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. This is done on Wednesday. The Federal Trade Commission joined with a separate suit, basically saying uh, this: these companies need to be broken up. Uh, They're talking about the squelching of competitors by simply buying them up. Antitrust tactics. Facebook, the largest social network in the world, 2.7 billion monthly active users across its four apps, Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, and WhatsApp. One of the more frequent users of many of those platforms is our guest, Robert Burko, CEO of Elite Digital in Toronto. Robert, back with us on the program today. Take a look at this massive lawsuit and uh, your concern, and I think a lot of people who are still trying to wrap their heads around all of this, Robert, is personal data. That's what's the core of all of this. The fact that, uh, and they were very upfront about it, no surprises here. They've We've always known that these companies exist to gather information about us and to sell it to people who want it, period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always say, and you know, I love to quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) And the reality is these, these big companies have that big responsibility. There is something to be said for housing the world's data. That is not a small statement. That's a big statement. They house the world's data. Yep. I often talk to people, you know, we do a lot of marketing on these platforms and I'll speak at different events and people will say, I feel like my phone is sometimes listening to me. And I say, it's not that your phone is listening to you. It's that these big giant corporations have so much data on you and they're tracking so many things, what you say, what you do, who you're friends with, what they're doing. All of that data is there that they can anticipate your behavior. 
Just did we just lose a Zoom connection there, Julie? We'll have to, to double check that one because uh, I think what Robert is saying is absolutely a hundred percent correct. By the way, uh, it, it's I suppose it, it always surprises us. Uh, for example, when we start receiving targeted advertising that's very specifically about things that we like, uh, and it, they pop up when we least expect them, and that's simply a byproduct of the information data mining that's being done at all times about us and uh, being sold to whoever is the customer du jour and having it bounced right back at us in uh, record time. So that's the part. It's it's the it's the ability to, to not only gather the information, but synthesize it and target it right back at you in, in sometimes just unbelievably record time. Uh, we got Robert back. Good stuff. Uh, Rob, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I believe I'm with you here. And, and on that, I mean, what you have to realize is what they're doing, and it's really interesting, and as, as just as your audience and as people, we should know this, they're taking raw data, they're turning that data into insights, and with those insights, they can be predictive about what we want. Yep. And we know that's happening. We know. No, we've lost him again. Rob. Your your Zoom connection is starting to break down on us a little bit, and uh, that's unfortunate because this is uh, this this is big stuff, and we're just gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna double up on the on the backup on the connection. Okay, fair enough. The uh, by the way, Facebook is calling this revisionist history. There, we were saying earlier that we're waiting for them to respond, and they haven't done a lot of responding yet, but they do. Uh, so far, their lawyers have said uh, General Counsel Jennifer Newstead called the FTC law suit revisionist history again as rob and i were discussing a few moments ago uh, the, the the reason that they're calling it revisionist history is that the commission suing them to break them up was the same commission that approved the acquisition of whatsapp and instagram on separate occasions years and years apart with billions of dollars in the equation both times and so now after having approved the acquisitions twice the uh, the commission's now going to try and uh, well basically reverse their decision so that's so the uh, the official response from facebook so far two words revisionist history rob and you know you, they're probably going to stay with that tactic pretty strongly all the way through so that's fundamentally going to be their argument and uh, maybe the powers that be at facebook are listening right now and butt me off the call right there so anything is possible. They have a lot of power, and maybe we're seeing them flex that power right now. Maybe, huh? Well, maybe. May that could be, you know, it could be what's happening. But what we have to realize is their argument is going to be that, right? And this is why it sets a big precedent. If we, you know, if a company, any company goes to the FCC and says, hey, we want to do this, and here's all the information. And again, that's like a quick snap of the fingers process. They jump through a lot of hoops to say, yep, this is okay. Right. We looked at everything. We approved this merger. Now, almost a decade later, to say, you know what, actually, guys, we want to do over. We don't like that. If you're on the Facebook side, and again, I'm not defending Facebook, but if you're on the Facebook side, you're sitting there saying, we've invested billions of dollars in growing these platforms. Yeah. The platforms today are different than they were. If we all think back, if we could all take a jump in our time machine and go back in time, when Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars, the narrative was, these guys are crazy. What is going on here? A billion dollars. Everybody, the whole social narrative was, Facebook, you've lost your mind. This is crazy. That's right. And we've all forgotten. We've all forgotten that was the narrative mm -hmm. because now suddenly, here we are a decade later, after making fun of them for making this acquisition, to now say, you know what, guys, that acquisition that we were all laughing at your stupidity about, turns out you were brilliant. Turns out that maybe was a smart move, but it was so smart and you've grown this to be so big 
and now we're actually concerned about the size and we're concerned that because you're so big, you're stifling competition. Yeah. And instead of, instead of inviting other people to potentially create other social networks, which is a very big challenge to do, they're saying that you're buying up the competition and you've gotten too big that it's, it's hurt sort of the general landscape. But Facebook's going to keep on saying, we asked for permission. You said yes. If my kids ask me if they could have candy and I say, sure, you have candy. And then I turn around and I got candy coming out of their mouth. I can't be like, whoa, where did that candy come from? They're going to be like, Dad, what are you talking about? I asked, you said yes, we could have them. Interesting analogy. Rob, how do you think this is going to end? A, I agree with you that it's going to take forever, but how do you think it's going to end? So I actually, so first of all, I think it's going to take forever. So I think the end is very far away. So I'll make this prediction. I'll make this prediction now and years and years from now, we could see if I'm right. I actually think what's going to happen is they're going to say it's simply too big to untangle. So right now, the, the SEC is trying to weave this conversation, and rightfully so, that there's three different products here. There's Facebook, there's Instagram, and there's WhatsApp. Right. However, I think what Facebook is going to turn around and say is actually these may be three different points of engagement, but it's all one platform. Advertisers who are using these platforms are advertising across Facebook and Instagram in singular campaigns. So I think the idea of we can't unravel this because they are put together you know, in the morning, if I make a, a smoothie for breakfast and I put a bunch of fruits in the blender and I blend it all together, you can't tell me afterwards, can you please separate these fruits out? It's all together. It's all mashed together. Right. And the inner workings of what's happening there at Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, these things are so intertwined that even if they decided tomorrow, you know what, guys, you do have to unravel this. I don't even know if that's a possibility. And I think the argument is going to be even if you want us to unravel it, it simply can't be done by virtue of how intertwined they are. And it may take another decade or longer to try to unravel it. And it's going to be interesting to see, because my real prediction is this is going to turn into a conversation about the data privacy and data protection far more than it is going to be about monopoly. And I hope you're right, Rob. I hope that you and I, as we continue our relationship across the country on these weekend mornings, get to talk more about the focus on data privacy and personal privacy, uh, because, boy, it's a pretty pretty precious commodity that it's becoming even more and more rare as time goes by. Thank you for this this morning. I appreciate your humor and and your take on all of this, and I agree with you. Uh, We're in for quite a long ride with this one. Absolutely. Happy holidays to you, sir. All the best. Stay safe. Robert Burko is CEO of Elite Digital, joining us from Toronto on a variety of platforms, as it turns out this morning. It's been uh, quite a week in terms of government announcements. The uh, new carbon tax announced by the federal government just yesterday afternoon and about a week or so ago, of course, we had the fiscal update from the Minister of Finance. Here to talk about both uh, is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure to welcome Aaron Woodrick to the program. Aaron, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Uh, I know the carbon tax is front and center on your mind because it's so fresh, and you've got a petition already up about it, but can we go back a week first? Because you at the uh, taxpayer.com uh, website have a uh, an open letter to the finance minister, Christian Freeland. Uh, was that written in the wake of the fiscal update, or had you prepared that in advance? 
We prepared that in advance, Sterling, and there weren't a lot of big surprises in this fiscal update. We knew they were spending a lot of money. We knew we'd have a very big deficit. We knew the debt was piling up. I think what was most striking about the fiscal update was two things. One was the lack of detail. You know, we've been waiting a long time to sort of have more detail about uh, the go forward. There wasn't a lot in there. There was just a promise to do it. And the other really eye-catching thing was a promise to spend money up to $100 billion after the pandemic ends on things to be determined. That's very unusual. Normally, you know, you decide what you want and you find the money for it. Here, they've got they've done that backwards. They've said we want to spend up to 100 billion, and we'll sort of tell you later on what we plan to spend it on. So now, uh, would that require? Would the uh, if this wish list that uh, w- w- it's not a budget, so it was just a fiscal update, which indicated a promise to spend 100 billion more? Would there be enabling legislation required for that 100 billion to be set aside for that purpose, or? Do they even need that, Aaron? Well, they just need to get a budget passed with a line item. So they just need a normal vote in the House of Commons. Of course, it's a minority, so they need at least one other party to support them. Right. Uh, but given given the shape of the House and that some of the other parties want them to spend even more, I don't imagine that would be a problem. But I do think it's troubling because I think, Sterling, a lot of people right now, um, you know, given the COVID situation, they understand why we had to spend during the pandemic. Sure. Right? Of course, things like health care, there was no way around that. But on the go forward, after the crisis is over, I think a lot of people, it's a different story. There's no automatic buy-in. They don't have a mandate to spend $100 billion on stuff they haven't even identified. Um, so I think that they may not be reading the room right here in terms of what people are willing to accept or support. Well, I think that uh, a lot of what they're talking about spending money on, Eric, Aaron, is, is something that, well, frankly, nobody voted for. Now, mind you, no one anticipated a pandemic in advance of, of supporting this government, even to a minority position. Uh, but no, that's part of what being government is about. It's being in charge when something really bad happens. Yeah, and frankly, it's also about planning for the worst. And on that front, you might say governments all over the world and in North America have failed on that to prepare. Uh, but more importantly, they're, they're really not uh, making any difficult choices here. I mean, they're proposing to spend on permanent things. They're talking about national daycare, for right. example. Mm-hmm. This is a program, Sterling, that they, they could not afford to do even when the deficit was $19 billion. Everyone sort of said, we don't have the room. Now the deficit's at $400 billion, and suddenly they're saying, oh, well, we need to do this. And I think for a lot of people, it's counterintuitive. If you run into an unexpected expense and have to borrow, that doesn't mean after it's over you're spending more. It usually means you're looking for ways to save and, and you know, cut back a little bit. Well, uh, and uh, because part of when you run into a crisis and you have to go out and borrow, once the crisis is resolved, there's a little matter of paying back what you had to go out and borrow. That just doesn't go on hold. Now, I get that for governments, it's different than for private people because the bank could be all over you if you missed a payment. Uh, governments can get away with a little more. They have a little more flexibility in their negotiations. And, Aaron, right now, they have the advantage of incredibly historically low interest rates that will not guaranteed stay so low. No, and frankly, we're very fortunate for those low interest rates because we would already be in a serious crisis if interest rates were higher. Yeah. But I do think it's a dubious plan to say our whole plan going forward is going to be to hope interest rates stay low. And to give you just you know one idea of how serious that is, a 1% increase in the effective interest rate would mean an extra $10 billion a year in interest payments for mm-hmm. the federal government. I mean, that's a large sum of money that could go to any number of other things. So just sort of hoping and wishing, crossing your fingers that interest rates are going to stay low forever 
I think it's a fairly risky plan. Did it surprise you, given the fact that they've said they've given themselves permission to spend another hundred billion and are looking to create said slush fund? Did it surprise you when the virtual meeting between the prime minister and the premiers on the specific matter of health care happened just a day or two ago, Aaron, that there wasn't much extra federal funding for health care issues and during a pandemic, for crying out loud? Yeah, and I mean, I think the Fed's position would be we've already given you a lot. But the flip side to that is the reason that the federal government, you know, not to be too cynical, they want to spend that $100 billion on the things they want to spend it right, on. Right, exactly. There's no benefit to them to say, I'll give it to the provinces to spend on something boring like health care. They want to spend it on exciting things that they're going to get political credit for. So that's my big fear. Um, and look, people can debate the merits of a particular expenditure, but to just promise a figure and say, we're going to figure out later what we spend it on, that is, a, that is inviting trouble and misspending. Well, you know, you're talking about reading the room uh, a few minutes ago, and I think one thing that the room is getting a little nervous about, Aaron, is the lack of transparency. The fact that there, when, when uh, parliamentary committees, and I appreciate that there's politics and gotcha stuff going on here, but when uh, opposition members of the House ask for government to simply account for the spending. Let's follow the money. That's what we get paid to do. It's our money, so let's keep an eye on things. How about a real close eye? And we want specific specific details about where the money has gone, and it's not very forthcoming. No, and that was the case even before the pandemic, and it's got even worse. And I think that's troubling, and this is not a partisan thing. It doesn't matter which party is in government and which party is in opposition. The job of the opposition and the media and third-party watchdogs like ourselves, is to scrutinize the government and make sure that the information is out in the public. And every government tries to hide this stuff. So I don't want to say that, you know, the Trudeau government is the first one in the history of time to try and avoid it. By no means. By no means. But but goodness, this is important stuff, especially just one example, infrastructure, right? This is a government that's talking a big game about spending tens of billions on infrastructure. Well, let's go look at their past record on infrastructure. It's not very good, and there's not a lot of detail in return for investment. So that's important stuff stuff people need to know. And I don't think it's unreasonable for people to say, if you're going to spend my money as taxpayer, I have a right to know uh, what you're spending it on. Joined on the line from Ottawa by Aaron Woodrick, the National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Their website, taxpayer.com, contains an open letter to Finance Minister Christian Freeland. Uh, and uh, there are four suggestions. They call them important ideas that will make a difference for all Canadians. So, Aaron, I'm going to outline the item, and you can give me a little bit of background behind it. Item one, and you went for maximum discomfort right off the top. Cut spending by reducing the number of bureaucrats bureaucrats by 15%, cut bureaucratic salaries by an average of 15%, while also cutting salaries for members of parliament and senators. Yeah, well, and the thinking here, Sterling, is pretty simple. It's not just for the sake of being mean. It's just a recognition that most Canadians who don't work in government have taken a hit during this pandemic. Some people have lost their jobs. Businesses have gone under. Many, many people, including myself, have taken pay cuts. Um, and I think there's just a, uh, an expectation that it, people in government should share in that. And so there's a number of ways to get there. We propose that 15 and 15 is one example. Another is to simply roll back the size of the federal bureaucracy to the level it was in 2017, which is two years after Justin Trudeau came to power, that would save between 12 and $15 billion. So there are ways to save money. 
Um, and there are ways to do it on things that have nothing to do with the pandemic. So we think that's really something the government needs to look, look to going forward, given what people uh, who are paying the bills in the private sector um, have had to go through themselves. And this could be accomplished uh, through attrition, retirement and various other things. It doesn't need to be a mass uh, a rollout of layoffs or firings, that kind of thing either, does it? No, absolutely. In fact, you can achieve most of it simply with salary cuts. Mm -hmm. Um, So the people who say, oh, we're going to cut services and programs, that doesn't have to happen if you simply cut the salaries. That is exactly what has happened in the private sector, where many people are doing the same job or doing even more work than usual for a little less pay for the simple reason that there isn't as much money to pay them with. Interesting stuff. Item number two of four, end corporate welfare and reduce spending on non-priority departments, agencies, and crown corporations, such as the C. CBC. Yeah, look, there are a lot of crown corporations, and the CBC is just one example, but there are some departments and ministries that are just not doing a lot of what they normally do because of the pandemic. One example is the Department of Canadian Heritage. They, they have a lot of festivals they fund. Those festivals aren't happening. They're all so cancelled, that's right. Well, it makes sense to, why would you keep the amount of funding on things that you're not spending on? I mean, it, to me, this is a no-brainer. Um, you know, you, you spend on what you need to, and in times of, you know, crisis, you need to find places where they're not a priority and save your money there. Yeah, but you know the mindset in federal ministries there, and you're, you're an Ottawa for crying out loud, you know the drill. If you spend less than you were allocated in this year's budget, if you did the taxpayers a favor and actually spent less than they gave you, they will give you even less next year, which, of course, is remarkable efficiency and, and the kind of thing that taxpayers would applaud. Bureaucrats hate it. They want more next year, not the same and certainly not less. Well, and that's the challenge, and that's why I think it has to come from the political level. And, and look, I don't think it's unreasonable to tell people who are, again, it's people in the private sector that generate the revenue to pay for all of these people who work in government. They should be grateful in government that they have not had to suffer at all in terms of uh, losing pay or jobs. And I'm not suggesting we just, you know, go out and fire people for the fun of it. But boy, if we can't find any savings whatsoever in a half a trillion dollar budget while people in the private sector are losing their shirts, I just, I just don't think that's sustainable publicly. Item three of four, support Canadian businesses and families by cutting business and personal taxes, Aaron. Yeah, so this, the thinking here is this. For a lot of businesses, especially small businesses, they've had a very bad year. And so how do we compensate them for that? Well, one way is to just throw money at them. The other is to do something like, for example, a temporary tax holiday. So one of the things we proposed was for the next two years, no taxes for small businesses. That rate is eliminated for two years. I think that would give them an opportunity to rebuild their finances, rebuild their businesses, and incentivize them to get things going again as we come out of the worst of the pandemic. Okay, now item number four, I think you really do step off a cliff into fantasy land here, but it's a certainly a reasonable sounding proposal. It says, make a concrete plan to bring the budget back to balance in the medium term. Something, Aaron, I don't think the Trudeau government is in even remotely interested in considering, let alone doing. Well, dare to dream, right, Sterling? But I mean, this is a government that couldn't keep its own promise to do this, um, even when the deficit was a tiny fraction of what it is now. So I I think you're right. I'm really swinging for the fence here. But I just think that there there needs to be, and and we're being realistic too. I mean, a, a, a year ago, I would have said we could do it three years. 
I know it's going to take a lot longer now, but just having that goal, having that goalpost, something to aim for, I think would provide some discipline to, to governments, you know, going forward, that they, it's not just a question of spend whatever you want, that they, they have to have a, a goal they're trying to accomplish. Taxpayer.com, by the way, is where you can go to sign that petition or sign on to the open letter to the finance minister. And also, if you'd like, uh, sign on to the petition to stop Trudeau's second carbon tax announced just yesterday. Only a few seconds here, Aaron, if you can, in a nutshell, your position on this well the announcement yesterday actually sterling was just to, to increase the existing one but there's a second one they call the clean fuel standard yeah um, that is going to impact everyone across the country and it could be actually a lot bigger than the first carbon tax and that's the one that uh, yeah I, I agree the yesterday's was I, I thought of it was a sort of a preamble it looked like a foot in the door kind of an announcement yeah, it, well, it, what it is going to do is it's going to regulate what goes into types of fuels. And so that is going to necessarily, you know, push in cleaner things, which is good, but they'll also be more expensive, which means, of course, you as a consumer, it's going to cost you more anything uh, that, you, that you buy that involves fueling. Oh, goody. Aaron Woodrick, thank you for this. We always appreciate appreciate having you on the program and we'll happily direct our listeners to taxpayer.com to check out all those petitions and the other good stuff on the website. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, taxpayer.com. Bob Chamberlain on the line. It's time to talk about fish farms again. Chief Chamberlain has been a guest on this program before, and we're here to talk about Discovery Island. Chief Chamberlain, Bob, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, Sterling. Glad to be back. Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, I got a press release uh, entitled Discovery Time, or Decision Time, rather, for Discovery Island Fish Farm. So uh, back us up a little bit, Bob. We've got a few minutes here. Uh, talk to us a little bit first about the September 30th deadline. But even before that, let's talk about the area and the specific fish farms we're talking about. Where are the Discovery Islands, for example? Well, the Discovery Islands are located in and around Campbell River on the backside of Quadra Island by Cortez Island. So a very key juncture in terms of out-migration, uh, Fraser River sockeye, and all the other fish that come from Fraser as well. So most of the, f- the fish that, that come up to, to uh, the Fraser River, uh, do they come f- through the inside passage uh, between Vancouver Island and the mainland down to the Fraser River mouth, or do they come from the far side of Vancouver Island, Bob? Well, the focus has primarily been on the out-migration of Fraser salmon, and it's acknowledged in government documents and other people's studies uh, that 90% of the, the salmon that leave the Fraser River uh, make their way to the ocean in the beginning of their four-year journey right. uh, through the Discovery Islands, up through Johnstone Straits and out to the Pacific Ocean. And these are young salmon heading out at the beginning of their life cycle, Correct. Yes, you're absolutely correct, and we have to understand that uh, this is the most vulnerable stage of their life cycle. And as they can, you know, as they go up and follow the tides as they do, they're brought in very close proximity sequentially to fish farms that are lined up along their migration route, offering all kinds of impacts. And uh, the concern has been that some of these young salmon uh, heading out are going to come in contact with salmon who are in pens and who are therefore exposed, at least, to some diseases that happen to uh, penned salmon. And that can be passed along to the wild salmon migrating through the area. That's the bottom line, right? That is one of them for certain. I mean, we've had science papers that have gone through international peer review released this year that talk about the enhanced levels of pathogens and disease in and around active fish farms. 
and to understand that these fish farms are located in good tidal flush areas for a variety of industry reasons. But the fact remains that the outmigration of wild juvenile salmon follow the tide, get brought close proximity, are offered up opportunity. They can't self-isolate from these diseases and pathogens. And they're also exposed to not only sea lice on the farms, but the larvae that's produced by the billions that live in the same water column in very enclosed areas along the route. So now, what? Uh, now, where does September 30th come into the conversation? Because as I understood it, September 30th was the deadline date for the Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans to make a determination as to whether those farms should be closed, Bob? Yes, and that was Recommendation 19 from the Cohen Commission, as many, many people will remember, uh, when there was a drastic uh, disappearance of millions of fish from the Fraser that didn't return triggered off a multi-year, $32 million examination of just what happened. Right. And Recommendation 19 said that if the Discovery Islands fish farms cannot be demonstrated to uh, be less than minimal or minimal risk to the Fraser River sockeye, then they must be closed. And so the, the announcement that DFO Minister Jordan made uh, on that date uh, trotted out nine so-called peer-reviewed science papers that uh, provided her a foundation to state that there is a minimal risk and they absolutely omitted any examination of sea lice. So what then does that do? Does that allow the Discovery Island fish farms to remain uh, operational until 2025, which appears to be the illusory deadline the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has set for the elimination of all open pen fish farms off the coast of B.C.? Well, I think before we get to that point, we need to examine the nine science papers that were provided as foundation for the minimal risk uh, to Fraser Sockeye, because it has gone through the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat process. And in my opinion, shared by many people, it is a horribly flawed uh, process that allows a proponent and its um, uh, interested groups like a fish farm company, uh, the BC Salmon Farmers Association, right. and other industry favorites, to be a part of the evaluation of the science, including the scope of examination and the terms of reference and the absolute review of the peer, like the peer review process itself. So it's horribly conflicted. Uh, I've often said to people, if you get a group of people that are in a room that are Montreal Canadiens fans and you ask them if Toronto Maple Leafs are the best, you're not going to get that outcome. It's going to be the Montreal Canadiens. So what we have is this industry in the room doing the very same thing and they get to determine what is acceptable and what level of risk their operations represent. That's far from objective, and it certainly causes me great, uh, great concern, of course. Is there any recourse, is, or is this now set in stone, essentially, and this is the way it's going to be, and going forward, uh, you and other people who are not necessarily on side, Bob, are just going to have to stay offside. Well, no, the, uh, what's, what's occurred now is the consultation process on the fish farms that are in and around the Discovery Islands. Right. It's an opportunity to First Nations, and DFO selected seven First Nations in the region of Campbell River to be a part of the consultation process. And so we were able to examine DFO documents, science, and so on, and advance uh, what we saw as reasonable accommodation of the infringement of rights and the pressure that is put on these seven nations is very large <clears throat> because what we're talking about is the migration of Fraser salmon. Of course, all the First Nations on the Fraser River 
the rights that they possess are constitutionally protected are definitely at risk for infringement. And yet the DFO is absolutely not spoken to any of them at all. Mm. Um, does, uh, so decision time for Discovery Island fish farms was, what is the decision? What is the, the uh, what's the crisis here, if you will, Bob? Well, we've got this coming week, December 18th, is when the uh, licenses are needing to be review, uh, renewed. Exactly. So can operate. And so, but within the consultation process, we've examined documents that DFO has on their website, and this is their commitment to Canadians to operate um, to safeguard wild salmon and all the responsibilities that DFO has. And one of the ones was the Framework for Aquaculture Risk Management. And we looked at that document, and there is plenty in there to give foundation to implement the precautionary principle because there is no precautionary principle policies specific to aquaculture. And so then you follow that uh, train of thought and you wind up at a fisheries decision-making framework, which is also referenced in the document. And we have to all agree without question, Fraser River sockeye are in a critical zone. Mm-hmm. Period. That's the reality. Yep. And when you look at this document, it says in the critical zone, Conservation concerns are paramount, and there is no tolerance for preventable declines. Decision rules developed for fisheries should reflect these general principles. And then further in the document, it talks about stock trajectory. And of course, with only you know less than 300,000 fish making it back up uh, the Fraser this past year, we are in a critical zone. The stock trajectory is about extinction, and every measure needs to be taken to protect them right now. Interesting. Oh, by the way, just as a complete aside, did it please you to some extent when the uh, the, the DFO did announce that that uh, where they had the landslide into the Fraser River, causing enormous disruption to the flow of salmon? Of course, a very expensive uh, retrofit to the area, and now DFO has said that they're going to permanently uh, adjust the, that area and and make it so that as close to uh, the original flow as possible. Possible will be resumed. Well, any and all uh, investments to sustain the wild salmon of British Columbia are extremely welcome. The numbers that I speak of, though, in terms of the ones that return to the Fraser, are the ones that were counted well before Big Bar yeah. uh, Rock Slide. Right. So, even though that certainly is a, a, a natural occurring impediment to the health and abundance of wild salmon, DFO must reach to the things that it can control and exert the same level of commitment to the preservation of our sacred salmon stocks for all British Columbians. And right now, the opportunity for Minister Jordan to demonstrate that DFO has learned from the East Coast cod collapse where Mm. they disregarded science and made decisions in favor of an industry. DFO must learn from that. That's where the precautionary principle and approach uh, was born. And so we need to have that happen now, especially with the salmon in the Fraser River being at this ultra-critical level. Because when we have low salmon returns, we have low salmon eggs hatching, which means we have low salmon juvenile numbers leaving the river. Mm -hmm. And it's accepted that only 1% to 4% of those juveniles make it back as adults. So from historic low juveniles to 1% to 4% of them making it back to the river clearly shows we're on an extinction cycle. If we think the last two years of returns were really abysmal, you just wait for another few years, we're going to see even less. Bob, is there a website you can direct our listeners to this morning that they can learn more about the the sort of material you've been talking about here today? Absolutely. If people choose to go and want to educate themselves more, Wild First 
is uh, an organization that has put together a lot of information about all of this. I would also, there's a, like, there's, go to Wild First, uh, have a look on there. You'll see that there's a link where you can actually send an email to Minister Jordan. We okay. made it very easy. And that would be very helpful just to ensure that she understands the vast amount of people that are opposed or that are concerned. very concerned about the go. health and abundance of wild salmon. Indeed. Wild first. Bob Chamberlain, always a pleasure, sir. We appreciate your joining us again this morning and bringing us up to date on this very important matter to all British Columbians. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. There's Bob Chamberlain, a former three-time, a three-term rather, vice president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. He's also the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Four new NHL divisions beginning to take shape. Report. That was the headline written of a story written by Rob Williams in the Daily Hive just a couple of days ago. As, of course, many Canadians, many millions of Canadians lacking their hockey fix on a Saturday night. Again, Rob, uh, look forward to something happening soon. And there might be even a Canadian division. Rob Williams is back with us. Good morning, Robert. Hey, how are you, Sterling? I'm fine, thanks. Let's talk about the Canadian division, and it exists simply because of the border closure that doesn't look to be going away anytime soon. So you want to do hockey that way, you got to keep the people north of the border. Uh, they're isolated up there, and the rest of us will figure the rest out. Pretty much the deal, right? Yeah, the, the big issue is, is um, I mean, players are allowed to, to come across the border, but they have to quarantine for 14 days. Sure. So that. So that makes any kind of um, games between Canadian and American teams, uh, you know, just not feasible. So, so luckily, um, you know, the, the Toronto Raptors and Toronto Blue Jays didn't have this benefit because they're the, the lone Canadian teams in their leagues. Uh, there's seven teams in Canada, and that's about the right number for for a division. So. Uh, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna make an all Canadian division, which actually kind of sounds kind of intriguing. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see the Vancouver Canucks probably play the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, at least eight games probably next this next season. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I think there there is there is an element to this that that uh, fans are really gonna look forward to. Oh, I think so, especially the, the Montreal Canadiens, another great example of a team that we used to see fairly regularly here, but over the realignment of the divisions over the years, they've become virtual strangers in this town, and it'd be fantastic to have them back, especially for a whole bunch of games in a season. Rob, do we know how many games the season might include? Yeah, I mean, we should know for sure pretty soon. Uh, owners and, and players and everything are uh, are deciding that as as we speak, uh, and they've been in discussions. The latest um, uh, reports out there have said that there'll be a, um, there could be about 56 games. Uh, there's still people talking like that there might be 48 games. Uh, 48 games is, of course, the number that the NHL has gone to a couple times when they've had lockout shortened seasons. Right. The most recent example was in 2013, mm-hmm. where they began play in uh, in mid January and then uh, and ended up having the 48 game season. So um, there is the possibility, of course, of, of of extending the season into July. They've talked about doing that. So 
There, there's a number of options uh, for them, but uh, but that's what they're talking about right now. Now, do we have a start update yet? I know there's still a lot of uh, T's uncrossed and I's undotted, and and I would and it's a lot of that has to do with money, specifically, you know, how much is going to be uh, foregone and repaid at a future date. Those negotiations still taking place, so I would imagine a start date is still a big question mark. Yeah, they're, they're targeting January 13th at the moment. Um, but of course, you know, there's there's no guarantees on, on any of the dates, but it sounds like if it's not January 13th, it'll be, you know, thereabout. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think I think part of the, the thinking of the NHL here is that, you know, every game they play with, with zero fans is going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> and I think the longer they wait, the better the chance that maybe in some cities i i wouldn't think in vancouver it would be a possibility but i bet you in a few places in the united states that um, fans you know, the as we get into yeah as we get to yeah. may and june that we, there might be fans for love yeah, quick question for you here, Rob. Uh, the Canadian teams that I just talked about, Montreal playing in Vancouver and how many Vancouver fans would be just so just jazzed at a chance to see the Habs more than once every three years. Uh, but that's going to the Canadian division involving teams from literally Montreal to Vancouver. It's, it involves a lot of travel. So the only thing the Canadian fans are talking about is that the other teams, the other three divisions, are they going to be realigned so that they in some way replicate the kind of travel time that the Canadian division is just going to have to spend because you're otherwise you're going to get one division pretty much guaranteed in the Northeast where the whole division gets to go on the bus to each other's games with very little travel involved at all. Yeah, no, I mean, the goal for the other divisions is going to be what the goal is normally when they make divisions is to uh, try to minimize travel. So it's going to be, Geographically based, um, so, you know, you have all the California teams and all the, you know, paired with all the other Western teams, right. like Arizona and Las Vegas. Um, yeah, so they're going to do that. I, I don't think the the they're not concerned about fairness necessarily. Yeah. You know, the, the Canadian division is just a, is, it's a it is what it is. Of what they're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Okay. So then, if that's the case, then they're just concerned about uh, the divisions being reasonably balanced. Are you convinced that they can pull that part off at least? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how balanced they're going to be. They're, you know, um, I'm looking at the the proposal for the, uh, uh, I guess, what would be kind of a modified Pacific division. Um, and there's talk that the initial proposal had Dallas in that division. Now they're talking about maybe Minnesota and Dallas swapping places. If that's the case, you know, there's going to be, a, you know, there's a few pushovers in that one division. So it's, it's not necessarily going to be like super balanced, mm-hmm. but, um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think the main, the main concern for this is, is uh, getting the right rivalries, getting the right um, geography set for, for these divisions. You think we're going to have an announcement of a schedule and the whole thing, at least packaged up with a bow in time for Christmas? <laughs> I do. I, I, I would expect that we probably will hear something in the next week, just based on the, the way the reports are starting to trickle yeah. in, you know, the, for the longest time they were, um, you know, the concern, the most concerning time was, was a couple of weeks ago when they hadn't really, you know, agreed on the, the finances and everything. And that was, you know, that was like similar to what happened in major league baseball, that which dragged uh, their season or delayed their season for weeks and months. So, 
Uh, they've agreed to all that. They've just got to figure out, uh, you know, what format to go with now. And it sounds like, um, you know, things are coming along slowly. Excellent. Rob, thanks for this. We always appreciate having you jump in on the show. It's always good to have a sporty moment with Mr. Williams. Thanks for getting up early. We uh, will look forward to your next appearance. Anytime. Rob Williams is the sports editor at thedailyhive.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.